0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In 2021, the Autism Society of America and leading disability groups nationwide dubbed April Autism Acceptance Month, a shift from calling it Autism Awareness Month. The groups said, quote, as many individuals and families affected by autism know, acceptance is often one of the biggest barriers to finding and developing a strong support system a support system that includes education, employment, accessible housing, affordable healthcare, and comprehensive long-term services. Today, Where We Live, we talk to people in the autism community, including two adults who were diagnosed later in life. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Today, my guests on Zoom. First, Carol Greenberg, who is autistic and the mother of an autistic teen. Carol was diagnosed later in life, and she's also an editor of Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. That's a book, a blog, and a community. Carol, welcome to our show. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I should mention Carol is also a non-attorney advocate for education for disabled children. And also with us on Zoom today is Dr. Mary Daugherty, founder of Autistic Doctors International. This is an information and peer support group for doctors on the autistic spectrum. And it was founded in 2019. She's an attending anesthesiologist and she lives in Ireland. Mary, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I wanted to, to start with Carol. I had mentioned, Carol, that you were diagnosed with autism in midlife. And so can you talk about that period uh, in your life and, and what led to that diagnosis?
2: Well, I never knew. I, I always knew that I was different somehow and that it had something to do with some sort of learning disability, but I didn't know quite what um, and um, just or, or a cluster of things things that are like learning disabilities, but I didn't know quite what. Um, And then I had a son who was diagnosed at about three and a half with autism. And suddenly everything started falling into place Um, because of course, like any parent, I was concerned. started looking into various websites and things, reading books on what this thing autism was, even though I had friends with kids with autism, I thought I knew some stuff, but I really didn't because I hadn't been reading stuff by autistic people themselves. So that was the first place I went. And every single um, website I went on to said, prepare yourself to enter a whole new world. Uh, Your child thinks completely differently from you. Their brain is different from yours. So I was like, okay, I'm prepared, I'll do anything I need to you know, sort of switch over to his mindset and see the world the way he does as much as possible. And so I kept reading and reading and reading and kept waiting and waiting and waiting to be introduced to this whole new world, and I wasn't. It just looked like the same world I lived in. And I thought, oh, wait. <laughs> um, so that was how I, I was first clued in.
0: <laughs> and so when you got that diagnosis, how did you feel?
2: Uh, Well, I I pretty much knew I was gonna get the diagnosis. I was a little afraid I wouldn't, but uh, I did go for an evaluation about two years after he was diagnosed and I felt, I was thrilled. Um, Everybody has somewhat different um, reactions when they're diagnosed later in life, but I was just thrilled Um, Mm. because, you know, really what was the alternative? That if I was not autistic, after all I had read and all I had experienced with my son, if I was not autistic, then I was what I had been called my entire life. I was lazy. I was not trying hard enough. I was not living up to my potential. I had a real fear of not being diagnosed as autistic, uh, which happens, which happens more in the case of women and trans people than it does or, or. Um, black people, brown people, Asian people. Um white men tend to get their diagnosis. It's it's still a hard road, but it's 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 not as hard as that of anybody other than white men.
0: You mentioned uh, your son as a toddler was diagnosed with autism, and then that led to your diagnosis. Uh, When we think of autism, uh, many people consider it a child disorder. And when we think about adults who are diagnosed uh, with autism spectrum disorder, so often uh, they may uh, appear invisible uh, to the neurotypical community. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, you know, it's just an unfortunate coincidence, but nowadays when we talk about masking, what we mean is literally putting a mask over our face to prevent COVID. But in autistic terms, masking means camouflaging one's um, autistic, any indication that one might be autistic, any indication that you might be struggling in any way throughout day-to-day life. And uh, I did that very well. Uh, but that's not an achievement because it erodes your sense of self. It, it it cuts into your time and energy enormously. And you do eventually get to the point where you just can't do it anymore. Um, I don't, you know, it varies for different people and for different abilities, but you just can't and you start to fall apart. And so it's very dangerous. There's a very high rate of early death and suicide among autistics particularly speaking autistics like myself who you know you wouldn't know i was autistic until unless you knew a lot about autism and you had spent some time with me my son is mostly non-speaking or what i call partially speaking you know pretty much within 2 minutes that there's something different about him me it takes a little bit longer a LOT LONGER ACTUALLY DEPENDING ON HOW MUCH YOU KNOW ABOUT THIS COMMUNITY. SO uh, PEOPLE WHO CAN MASK LIKE ME, AND MASKING IS A PRIVILEGE, I MEAN there's SOME PEOPLE LIKE MY SON WHO DO NOT HAVE THAT PRIVILEGE. HE CAN'T GO AROUND AND JUST, YOU KNOW, BE TAKEN AS A NON-AUTISTIC PERSON, HE ALWAYS SEEMS AUTISTIC. BUT SO I HAVE THE PRIVILEGE OF MASKING, BUT I ALSO HAVE THE DANGER THAT COMES WITH
3: MASKING.
0: Hmm. I mentioned that Mary Doherty is still with us. Dr. Mary Doherty, uh, she's founder of Autistic Doctors International. Uh, Mary, I wanted you to respond to what Carol shared and a little bit about uh, when you were diagnosed as well.
3: I mean, so uh, everything that Carol, that Carol has said just resonates with me because so much of it is similar. And there's so much, it's such a common theme within the autistic community. Um, you know, late, being diagnosed late, late in life, often after a child is diagnosed. And that's very much my story as well. But what really struck me was just that sense of knowing that we were different, even as really small kids. Um, I can remember back from before I ever even started school and just knowing that somehow I was different. And, you know, how it took till I, you know, how did I get to my mid-40s without knowing this? How did nobody pick this up beforehand? Um I often think wonder how things might have been might have been different if I had known earlier. but yeah, my son was uh, he's 14 now um when he was diagnosed around five and and that process started when he was about three. so I had quite some time similar to Carol, to just do a bit of investigation to think about this, to read about it because I knew nothing about it. as a you know, as a doctor, we had absolutely no training um and I just started to realize that well, if he was autistic, then I most definitely was. And um, yeah, I mean, it took me a little while longer to go through that assessment process and get the diagnosis myself. And I think I had a different reaction in that my initial reaction wasn't necessarily as positive as Carol's has been, because I think I knew very little about it, very little about it. And I was a doctor. Can you be autistic and be a doctor? I didn't know that. I certainly didn't know any other autistic doctors. Um, and I was, I was quite worried on a number of fronts. Um, now, of course, I know, of course you can, there are loads of us. There are so many, um, autistic people within, within healthcare. Um, and that's where, where we started the organization, Autistic Doctors International, and you know, it's growing hugely, there's loads of us. Um, but I can absolutely say that receiving my diagnosis, realizing that I was autistic. It's the best thing that ever happened to me because now I understand myself in a way that I just never did before.
0: You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, as we talk to uh, two adults who are autistic, uh, both uh, diagnosed uh, in midlife. Uh, Again, we want to hear your questions, or if you're part of this community, some of the observations, uh, especially in a month, uh, as I mentioned, uh, where the public is encouraged uh, to think about autism and acceptance. Uh, Mary, you mentioned you, growing up, you knew that you were always different. Uh, When I think about um, the awareness and acceptance uh, that um, that has grown in, in recent years, that differences are not viewed as deficits. What do you think about that?
3: No, well, absolutely. And I think that's why I, you know, when I was initially diagnosed, the, the impression that I had was that this was somehow something that was wrong with me. Absolutely not perfectly good autistic person. I'm not a broken version of uh, you know uh, of, of non-autistic. Um, and just recognizing that and coming that journey um, from feeling that there was something wrong with me to self-acceptance and understanding has just been the most positive uh, positive thing in my life. Mm-hmm.
0: Carol, I wanted to hear uh, you also respond to that question. I guess this leads into what neurodiversity means. Okay, Um, so could you be a little more specific? I'm wondering Uh, when when we think about how um, people are more aware of autism, but also thinking about um, why it's important to think about um, acceptance, the fact that differences are not viewed as deficits.
2: Autism awareness and autism acceptance? Um, I think it's about the conversations each term when, when, really used in its real sense leads to. Autism awareness leads to questions and discussions about causality of autism and possible cure for autism. Mm -hmm. If you're just aware of autism and you still are holding on to this belief that it means there's something fundamentally wrong, um, then of course you want to know what caused this terrible thing to happen. And then you want to know how to fix this terrible thing. And the research, all the research, and right now, most, the vast majority of the research is um, going into this vortex, essentially. Um, And I'm not going to name organizations, but I think all autistics know which ones I'm talking about. And it's not um, autism society, (laughs) American Mm -hmm. Autism Society in our case. but if you're researching only causality or fundamentally causality and, and therefore cures, um, you're, not, you're not researching the things that are going on in living people's, um, in living autistic lives right now. You're researching what might, quote unquote, cure people in the future, mm-hmm. way in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if you buy into that, it's problematic. It's not helping me, not helping my son, probably not helping any grandchildren I might have. We're talking way in the future. I need help now, he needs help now. So that's one of the problems with autism awareness. Autism acceptance, as long as you're not using, just substituting the word acceptance for awareness, as long as you really understand it as acceptance, leads you into an entirely different discussion. Um, The questions are about what autistic people need now and how that can be provided. It leads into research about what autistic people need now and how that can be provided. And that's an ever-evolving policy question on a governmental level, locally, uh, in the United States statewide and nationally, in other countries, uh, depending upon the form of government, on a governmental level as well as the personal level. Um, So what would improve our lives? Well, uh, in in our case, in the case of my family, in the case of many families like mine, where you have an already um, autistic middle-aged going into elder life person, it's about autism transitions throughout our lives. So not only is my son transitioning from school age, he's 19, from school age into the next step of his life. But I am transitioning from middle age into my elder years. We're talking about housing and how to make all of this accessible. We're talking about funding for services like jobs for those autistics who can or want to hold them, like Medicaid in in this country. We're talking about legal services, including custody, as I understand it, in the UK, custody of autistic parents, custody by autistic parents of their disabled children is a big question. It's being challenged a lot. We're talking about uh, services of access to, to transportation. We're talking about medical support. Who goes with an autistic person, whether they speak or not? They usually need some sort, we usually need some sort of support in medical settings. Um, And we're talking about wider linkages between autistics um, and the wider disability community. So that leads to a lot more immediate and fundamentally more answerable and useful questions and, and research.
0: You're hearing Carol Greenberg here on Where We Live. She's autistic, the mother of an autistic teen, and she's also an editor of Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. Also with us is Dr. Mary Daugherty, founder of Autistic Doctors International. Uh, Mary, I wanted to hear your perspective. uh, When uh, Carol did a great job laying out the difference between awareness and acceptance and, you know, so often uh, there is a discussion about therapies aiming to cure people of their autism i wanted to hear your perspective on that
3: yeah i would agree with everything carol said i mean acceptance understanding and acceptance is what we need um because when you think about what's the optimal optimum outcome what are we aiming for we're aiming for a content and healthy autistic adult autistic child autistic adult and so much of what is done to autistic uh, autistic kids is absolutely not what's needed. It's not based in aware. It's not based in you know in, in acceptance and support. It's all around this you know cure narrative. But the the difference between awareness and acceptance for me, it's all about um, the, the the mental health outcomes. Really, is probably the most important thing for me, um, because we know that you know autistic people have um, pretty awful mental health uh, m- mental health statistics, and so much of that is because of the stigma that surrounds autism it's this it's portrayed as this tragedy um and there's so much of the awareness campaigns that really perpetuate that autism as tragedy narrative and um, when what we actually need is supports that will um optimize our mental health and so much of that is around acceptance understanding i mean familiarity with the autistic world is just so important but so many of those um who are, you know, driving the research agenda, just don't have that basic familiarity with the autistic world. Um, so for me, the, the understanding is just the absolute key point. We don't need to be cured. There's nothing wrong with us. We're not, we're not defective. Being autistic, it's not a mental illness. It's not, you know, it, like, we're just, it's a different way of, of experiencing the world. Um, and it's just as valid. And the thing is, the world needs us as we are. The world does not need autistic people to be cured of being autistic. We bring really, really valuable um, strengths to the world. Um, mm. So that, that's my take on that. We absolutely don't need to, that to drive that cure agenda. We do need research into what will support us and help us to to be our best autistic selves.
0: We're going to keep talking to both Mary and Carol after a short break. Now, are you part of the autism community? You can join us, too. 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: so ecmo is considered when treatments have failed and in our center with a special ecmo on the go team we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery for more information go to ctpublic.org elevating health
0: this is where we live on connecticut public radio i'm lucy nopith today we're talking with two adults who were diagnosed with autism in midlife on zoom with us carol greenberg who is autistic and the mother of an autistic teen. She's also an editor of The Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. Also with us, Dr. Mary Daugherty, founder of Autistic Doctors International. This is an information and peer support group for doctors on the autism spectrum. It was founded in 2019. Uh, Mary, I noticed on your Twitter, uh, you mentioned that it was April of 2019 when you first said to a group of medical professionals,
3: I am autistic. How did they respond? Very well, surprisingly. Um, Much better than I was expecting. I think we tend to get two different reactions when I talk about uh, autistic doctors. On the one hand it's like no way doctors can't be autistic and then on the other hand it's like yeah well of course we all know that but we just don't talk about it and i think that's been the most interesting aspect for me is around the whole area of disclosure um because again it's to do with the acceptance the awareness versus acceptance i mean there's so much stigma around autism that really prevents professionals from disclosing so lots of us know that we're autistic um but we're only gradually starting to come to a space where it's okay to disclose. Um, and as more of us do, it's much easier for others to, to, to do so. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I've been really surprised at how, how well it's been received um, generally. And you've done
0: research around autism in the healthcare community. So can you uh, share with us what you found when we think about general practitioners and, and how they approach autism spectrum disorder?
3: Yeah, we found a huge need for um, awareness, understanding, and acceptance of autistic people within healthcare because the healthcare outcomes for autistic autistic people are not good. We have um, we have a mortality gap. There is a reduced life expectancy, and there is increased um, r- rates of physical and mental health conditions. Um, but there is huge barriers in terms of accessing both primary care and secondary care. Um, Which, in my view, leads into um, why our outcomes are so awful. Um, Why is it that we have to use emergency departments far more frequently than non-autistic people, for example? Why is it that autistic people get so much sicker before presenting for medical care? Um, I think if there was a greater understanding of autistic needs, um, then that would not necessarily be the case. I think there's only a minority of general practitioners that would have had any realistic um training around autism or would have any real understanding um of the needs of autistic people. Um a small minority um would say that they're com- confident and competent uh, to look after autistic patients. And there is a there is a great desire for 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 training um and for information. Um and I think it's it's just so so badly needed because. Autistic people really struggle to access healthcare services in the first place. And often that's where, particularly where uh, services are dependent upon phone use, because we, we generally tend to avoid using the phone. But once people then do access the services, there is huge barriers to around communicating with healthcare providers. Um, and and the key point about our research re, um that we conducted recently was that. These barriers are linked with self-reported adverse outcomes. So we have pa- people reporting, like one third of our autistic group reported a potentially life-threatening condition for which they weren't able to access healthcare. So we mm. absolutely need to raise awareness of this within, within healthcare, and that's that. That's really my mission, um, and that of Autistic Doctors International. That's what we're working towards, um, so that every healthcare provider would have a, at least a basic understanding. And um, so that autistic people aren't excluded from healthcare in the way that they currently are. Hmm. Carol,
0: I mentioned you're an editor of the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. This is also a community. And I'm wondering if you can share with us when we hear Mary talk about you know healthcare barriers and outcomes in primary and secondary care, um, the people in your community, what they've experienced.
2: Oh my gosh, it's so difficult um, going for medical care when you're autistic. I always, always, always tell any practitioner who I'm who I'm going into that I'm autistic. I'll say, I am autistic, and here's why I'm telling you this, um, because I have trouble understanding directions unless they are written down. I have a central auditory processing disorder, which is endemic throughout um, throughout autistic people's experience i have a great deal of difficulty even understanding auditory directions like turn right go to the end of the hall and then take the elevator so understanding directions of how much uh, medicine i should take how many times per day for how long is just not going to happen until it's written down and emailed to me doesn't matter what part of my body you're treating doesn't matter what the condition is but you can see all of the possible errors just with medication so every single doctor from psychiatrist psychiatrist to podiatrist needs to know that i'm autistic and i need every instruction written down and no i can't understand it if it's transmitted to me over the phone mm-hmm. and i have a lot of resistance to this particularly within the practice. So the doctor, um, doctors themselves might understand what I need, but they don't necessarily transmit that information to their staff who get very annoyed with me when they try to tell me what to do and I don't understand. And that's, that's somebody who, once again, it's hard to tell I'm autistic unless you know I'm autistic or unless you know something about autism. My son um, doesn't speak very much. So, What he needs needs to be communicated in a way, first of all, they need to presume his confidence. They need to presume that he understands everything that's being said to him. He may or may not at a given time, given the interference with auditory processing that he has as well. But if you assume that somebody understands, then you don't talk down to them. You don't leave that information. You don't talk to somebody else about them in their presence as if they don't exist. Uh, which happens to him all the time, um, and you you take seriously, and and his reactions to things are going to be different. His his um, his emotional reactions to things are going to be different, and we also have idiopathic reactions to medications. You give an autistic a drug, you're not guaranteed, but but very frequently we absorb. Drugs differently, more quickly or more slowly. We need different dosages. Autism, um, autism is it all? Is a full body experience? Mm. Uh, and medical professionals don't know that. They need that communicated to them. Mm.
0: You mentioned your son, and we think about how advocacy has changed, centering uh, the experiences, the voices of autistic individuals. But if someone is nonverbal, how can we ensure that they are heard as well, Carol? Well, first
2: of all, the term that, that, um, that is preferred is actually non-speaking. Non-verbal means that you cannot make sounds, and my son has always made sounds. Furthermore, my son has actually always used words. What we didn't under, the reason his diagnosis was as late as it was, doesn't sound late, but we knew something, we thought maybe, or his grandmother's actually, thought maybe something was going on but he was actually communicating with us using real words, but they were words that he was repeating from his favorite TV shows or singing instead of saying. He didn't have any original language at three and a half. And we didn't even know that. Um, So um, he's not nonverbal, he never has been. He's mostly non-speaking, which means he doesn't have much pragmatic speech. It means he doesn't have much original speech he won't form a sentence on his own as often, okay? So I'm, I'm sorry, I think I've gotten off track here. But in terms of advocacy, what it means for him and self-advocacy, um, he may never be in a we don't know yet, but he may never be in a position where he needs to go to a doctor and he can be completely alone in the whole experience and be able to navigate it without help but he is learning assistive augmentative communication, AAC, how to use that. So he can, he's starting to type what he wants and what he needs and what, how he feels and conversational stuff. Speaking is, using his mouth to speak these words is hard. Typing is not as hard. So that's one way that he can self-advocate. Um, but there's nobody who can't communicate at all. I mean, absolutely nobody. Um, so even just saying out or no, uh, which you can certainly do is, is a type of communication and people need to know it.
0: We just have but, a few minutes left. Uh, Mary, I wanted to go back to you, uh, you know, as we talk more about acceptance, you know, it's probably a good time to also think about the misconceptions people have of autism spectrum disorder. What did you want to share with our listeners uh, for them to reflect on?
3: Um, yeah, I think, again, in terms of terminology, I tend to just use autism. Um, I don't tend to think of autism as uh, as a disorder, even though that's in the um, diagnostic manuals at this point of time. Um, I think autism is, it's a different way of being in the world. It's a different way of experiencing the world. It's a difference. Um, and I think in terms of myths and misconceptions, as I look back and what I learned through, throughout my training, I mean, I had... I've just all the stereotypes, you know, young boy lining li- lining up cars or obsessed with trains. That's just so far from what the, the the autistic experience actually is, and also what I had learned was that you know autistic people fall into certain categories, and um, and I think that's again it's not true. That's something that I've learned because you know even in terms of as Carol said, not you know non speaking people. Um, non-speaking people sometimes do speak. And there's so many misconceptions. It's not, you know, it's not one or the other and it's fluctuant, it changes because the level of um, ability to communicate or the level of need or support needs is very, very variable. Um, And again, it goes back to, I think, just familiarity with the autistic world and being able to support autistic people um, appropriately. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think so much of it is to do with um, stigma, And just understanding and accepting autism so that people who are autistic are able to disclose, able to be openly autistic, um, because that, that benefits everybody.
0: That's Dr. Mary Doherty, founder of Autistic Doctors International. She lives in Ireland. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Mary. Also with us, Carol Greenberg, an editor of the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. Carol is autistic and also the mother of an autistic teen. Carol, we thank you for your time as well. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're gonna learn about a panel discussion uh, coming up later this month in Connecticut with a focus on people of color in the autism community. First, it's our spring membership campaign. We bring you different perspectives about issues uh, that matter to you and your community, as well as our world. And if you enjoy these, these kinds of conversations, we ask you for your support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Later this month, the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, Equity and Opportunity and Disability Rights Connecticut are hosting an event with a focus on autism and underrepresented communities and communities of color. To tell us more, joining us now on Zoom is Stephen Hernandez, who's the Executive Director of that commission. Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So when we think about the autism community in Connecticut, what do we know, Stephen?
1: Well, what we do know, there there are a couple of elements that I think are important to repeat that some of your uh, some of your speakers have already covered. But what we do know is that the rates of diagnosis for autism spectrum disorder as they, as it is called are in, have increased over the last 2 years. Now, some of the data points that we are following as a commission, of course, is a focus on equitable diagnosis, equitable resourcing, and as some have said on your show already, equitable lifelong transition services. Now, what does that mean for our population here in Connecticut? We look at the overlay of the disaggregated data. Uh, one thing that we know is that from uh, 2014 to 2015, we've seen an increase uh, or at least a steady a steadiness in in in- school and out-of- school suspensions for children of color. Uh, we see that while the numbers have decreased for general general population, large disparities remain in suspension rates for children. and it's it's hard listening to your listening to your other guests not to think about how it is that young children, especially children of color, are diagnosed later than their white counterparts um with uh, with um, autism spectrum disorder often their behavior is seen as obstinance as laziness as some have said and as inattentiveness and what the what this means is that children of color are waiting to receive not only a diagnosis but those critical interventions that we've discussed today that are important to overall success
0: It's important to hear those stats, especially related uh, to children and their diagnoses. Uh, our previous uh, two guests uh, were um, adults who were diagnosed with autism in midlife. and I'm wondering when we think about uh, adults in our state with autism, uh, to make sure that they are not invisible, that they're connected to the services they need. What's being done, Stephen?
1: Well, it's critically important, these transition services throughout the life cycle that we've discussed are are, really at the crux of our understanding of how to best address, how to accept and address uh, what, a, what an autism spectrum diagnosis means for the individual. Uh, there's a saying in the community that when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And I think that holds true uh, for so many people throughout the life cycle. Now that means vital transition services from those early education diagnoses and interventions and then into transition to workforce, into whatever level of independence is appropriate for the individual. Uh, that might mean uh, interaction with some of our agencies that manage disability rights, that manage access to workforce training and intervention, but also some of those later in life transition services that are so important to our residents. Again, meeting people where they are starts with that acceptance that we talked about, because acceptance, again, leads to action.
0: When we talk about communities of color, and as you mentioned, uh, children uh, who are diagnosed uh, much later, so what's being done to uh, to address that community? I know that's part of the discussion you'll be having at this event later this month.
1: That's right. Well, one of the things that is critically important here is not only to disaggregate data about children, but to also understand that there may be stigmas uh, in communities Uh, In many Asian cultures, for instance, there's still great stigma around autism. Many families struggle to talk about or acknowledge autism within their families. So many won't seek the supports and services that can make a really huge difference in the lives of their autistic children. And then often, parents of color are less likely to be concerned about behaviors like delayed speech and repetitive behaviors, even though their children show a greater severity of these symptoms. uh, Behaviors can be misdiagnosed as bad behavior, especially in boys of color, leading them down what we know is an uncertain path for these children and then finally uh, you know the numbers really tell the full story Lucy one in five white children receive their diagnosis from primary care physicians as opposed to only one in three African-American children meaning that white children are really are more likely to be given referrals to specialists that specialist referral is so critically important especially in early diagnosis
0: We've mentioned diagnosis a few times, but that can also be expensive and time consuming. And so how do you help uh, families and individuals uh, get the care they need?
1: Well, acceptance really, again, is about meeting communities where they are. In so many of our communities in Connecticut, parents often have to self-help, have to find the resources around them that they know are going to best help the child that they know best. IN COMMUNITIES OF COLOR WHERE THERE there IS DISPROPORTIONATE AND and LESS ACCESS TO EQUITABLE EDUCATIONAL OPPORTUNITY, TO THOSE CRITICAL INTERVENTIONS THAT WE KNOW ARE SO IMPORTANT TO YOUNG PEOPLE, WE REALLY NEED TO UNDERSTAND THAT THE RESOURCING FOR NOT ONLY DIAGNOSIS, BUT THOSE INTERVENTIONS THAT YOU'RE DESCRIBING Mm -hmm. ARE CRITICAL. THIS IS ABOUT EQUITY AND IT'S ABOUT MEETING PEOPLE WHERE THEIR NEEDS ARE uh, and sometimes that means that we need to put more resources where we know that there is less diagnosis and less of that uh, less of that overlay of the data that's so critically important to understand the full issue.
0: We've got less than two minutes, Stephen, but I wanted you to just mention the event at the state capitol, I believe, april twenty ninth or is it a Zoom event? Tell us a little bit about who'll be speaking.
1: Well, thank you so much. So this is a really exciting event that we're, as you said, Ah, uh, coordinating with Disability Rights Connecticut. Some of our guest speakers are going to include Dr. Hassad Minas, which is who is the Chief of Autism Services at the Hospital for Special Care, and Keisha Powell, certified autism specialist and diagnostician. Now, what's really excited about this event at the Capitol, it'll be both in person, outside in the steps, weather permitting, and we will be broadcasting on social media, Facebook, and Zoom. What's really exciting is that we have leaders in the state that have historically led the charge. Uh, in not only raising awareness and acceptance, but also bringing resources. State Representative Kathy Abercrombie and State Senator Tony Huang among them. Uh, We will also have people with lived experience, people who are are diagnosed on the autism spectrum, uh, who will be sharing their experiences of of trouble and success. Uh, It's important to understand, again, that acceptance means understanding that success can look individual and very different for each person who has been diagnosed. And lifelong success can mean uh, us working together, but also resourcing people so that they they have every opportunity available to them.
0: Mm. Uh, Stephen, for listeners who want uh, to learn more, can you just share where they can go online uh, to learn about the event?
1: Well, thank you. You can go to our website, our web, our Facebook page. Uh, which is uh, Facebook cwcseo you can also go to the Connecticut General Assembly's website for the commission and that is at cga.ct.gov and the direct website for the commission is cwcseo the commission on women children seniors equity and Opportunity.
0: We'll be sure to put that on our website as well, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Stephen Hernandez, again, Executive Director of the Commission on Women, Children, Seniors, and Equity and Opportunity. Thank you for your time. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible and Sarah Gasparado. It's our spring membership campaign. We know you appreciate these programs on WNPR because you listen. Now is the time to support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.